You can be seated, and kids, you are free to go. Hope that you have a great time as you go to enjoy being together and studying together. Thanks. Uh, If you're new with us uh, today, my name is Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here at Church on Mill. We uh, started a new series of uh, sermons the last several weeks, looking at what we're calling Behold Our God. And we are going to be considering this summer um, what the scriptures teach us, some of what the scriptures teach us about uh, who God is. And so we're um, just entering that. We're in the third week today. There is uh, lots of good books written to encourage us and teach us what the Bible says about who God is. One of those is uh, probably the most important book written in the last maybe 100 years about God. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's an outstanding book. There's several more available back there at uh, the bookstall. If someone would like to invest some time learning more about who God is, I would love to give this to you. Who would be interested? All right, come on up, would you? Yes, you're coming up, so you deserve applause, of course. Again, a book called Knowing God very helpful. Enjoy. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me to John 1. We're going to look at a couple of passages in John chapter 1 and a few later in John and then one more in Colossians today. So Nathaniel started this series out a few weeks ago by telling us there is a God and this God is good and this God wants to be known. That's all great news. We cannot know God exhaustively, but we can know God truly. And we said last week that the most important thing about each of us is what we think about when we think about God, because everything in our life is ultimately shaped by the way we understand God. The first couple of weeks in this series, we're going to be considering a a central idea, and that is that God is triune. We defined that last week, if you were not here. Uh, by saying, there is one God who has eternally existed as three equal yet distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And we used this picture last week to help us uh, imagine what that concept would look like. So this is hundreds of years old. Nobody's sure exactly who came up with this or when. It is simply known as the ancient diagram of the Trinity. And it is a helpful way of helping us understand what the scriptures teach us. So um, this picture isn't in the Bible, of course, but the words get at this image that God is the Holy Spirit. God is the Son. God is the Father, like we just sung together. The Father is not the same thing as the Spirit. The Spirit's not the same thing as the Son. And the Son is not the same thing as the Father. The Trinity is one of the most important truths in all of Christianity It's also one of the most difficult and mysterious. If you completely understand that, then you should be the one up here, because I don't. This this is a tough, tough concept. And honestly, that used to drive me absolutely crazy, to stand up in front of a group of people and say, here is God, and yet I can't explain everything about that God to you, bothered me. And as I've grown in my faith, I've come to see That was more about my idolatrous need to control than it was a true desire to worship and understand God. So I just confess that to you. 
why is it that we would expect God to have all knowledge and all power and all wisdom and we'd be fully able to understand who he is? It just doesn't make sense. God is bigger than us. And so we can acknowledge that here is what God says about himself and it isn't contradictory and yet I don't completely fully understand it. So I would humbly submit that to you today. I don't pretend to understand it all, but this is what God says about himself. So last week we introed that and we said, God is our father and spent some time looking at that. Today we'll be looking at Jesus. Massive topic, but we'll consider who Jesus is under four headings today. So four facts about who Jesus is and what he's done. Number one, Jesus is God. Number two, Jesus is God in skin. Number three, Jesus is both the slaughtered lamb and the sovereign Lord. And then that leads us to this. Therefore, Jesus is the epicenter of life. So what we'll talk about today is each one of those things. And of course, a whole a Sunday gathering could be spent on each one. But we'll merely seek to survey each. And I hope to spur you on to consider these truths the rest of the week the rest of life, and to be investing in relationships with others who would help you consider how to live in light of these things. So as you consider these truths, please do so knowing the supreme importance of knowing Jesus. There is nothing more important. There's absolutely nothing more important than knowing Jesus. What you do with Jesus determines where you will spend eternity. Heaven or hell hang in the balance today as we consider the person and work of Christ. And not only does eternity hang in the balance, every moment of every day for the rest of our lives is wrapped up in whether we're worshiping Jesus, which will result in our joy, or whether we're worshiping other things, which will eventually result in our lack of joy. So everything hangs on this question of who is Jesus and what has he done? So the first fact I want to consider with you in just the few moments we have is Jesus is God. This is what John chapter 1 tells us. John chapter 1. I was going to make a smart aleck remark and I exercised maturity. You should praise God for that. So John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, that's the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. Jesus is here called the Word. There's a long story why, which we don't have time to spend on today, But notice that some really staggering claims are made about him here in just a few verses. John says that Jesus was present in the beginning, meaning that he's always existed. He says that creation occurred through Jesus' power. That's some serious power. Friends, Jesus is not an impersonal force. He's not merely a prophet. He's not a principle upon which we build our lives. He's not one of many great spiritual leaders in history. 
Rather, He's a personal God who deserves our worship and obedience. Just consider what John has said. He says He's powerful enough to simply speak words and things come into existence that didn't previously exist. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So what? Well, the Gospel of John will go on to demonstrate that Jesus' power today is a laser beam focused on saving sinners from slavery to sin and empowering believers for a life of joy and obedience and service. Now I'm really tempted to make a sarcastic (laughs) thought. John also says that Jesus is eternal. That, That it means He existed in eternity past, He exists today, and He exists in the future. So what? Well, We're constantly today looking for wisdom and guidance. We want to be people that make wise decisions and not mess up our lives. We want to know the meaning and purpose of life. We want to know what's worth living for and what isn't. We're looking for relationship and identity everywhere we turn. John starts this brilliant letter by telling us, look no further than Jesus and Jesus' people. Because He's always been. He's the only thing that's constant forever. So our first fact about Jesus is that Jesus is God. John 1 plainly says that. Now second, Jesus is God in skin. Here's where it's going to get a little more confusing. Jump down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says that a particular moment in history around the shift in time. So in school today, we're, we're not taught BC and AD anymore. Those of you still in school are aware of that. What are we taught now? BCE and CE. So before the common era, and common era, all right? So that's incredibly new idea, incredibly new idea. For essentially the rest of time, time has been considered B.C., before Christ, and A.D., after the year of our Lord. So there's a very overt attempt today to take Christ out of history. That's not a political statement. I'm not even interested in having that conversation. What I am interested in telling you is that that history, for most of history, has been marked by the emergence of Christ into the world. So time literally is split in two based upon when Jesus came. At a particular moment in time, Jesus left heaven, came to earth, and took on the humanity of a Jewish baby. Jesus added humanity to his deity. It says that he became flesh. He was 100% God, and he became 100% God and man. Now, the big churchy word for that is incarnation. Jesus is God incarnated. Now, before we go any further... Do you know what that means? Not do you know what the word means, but do you know what it means that God 
did that. That God was willing to take that crazy step. It means that Jesus willingly traded the glory of heaven for the difficulties of earth. So what? Well, have you ever felt as though God is disinterested, aloof, or detached? Have you had that feeling today? Did you feel that as we were singing and everybody around you looked happy and sincere and you thought, this is a bunch of ridiculousness? Friends, those are common thoughts to have. But the incarnation proves it's not true. The incarnation proves our feelings are lying to us because Jesus came. God became human. God dwelt among us. God became one of us. He gave himself for a world that had rejected him. Nothing could be more opposed to or opposite from a God that's disinterested, aloof, or detached. He entered our world for us. Sometimes it's claimed that the disciples, after Jesus had died, concocted the lie that Jesus was God. Have you ever heard that? Has anybody ever said to you, Jesus never himself claimed to be God? Uh, if, if I had a quarter for every time in college I had somebody tell me that, then uh, I could do this for free. I heard it all the time, all the time. And for a while, honestly, I believed it. I took on that information that I had been given over and over and over because people a lot smarter than me were telling me. Jesus never said that. The problem is that's not really how you're supposed to read the Bible, right? So if you get on the app on your phone right now and you type in, Jesus is God or I am God, and you look for red letters where Jesus said the words, I am God. Guess what? You won't find it. It's not in there. So that's the kind of step I took to try and figure out. All these professors continue to tell me, and they have little funny letters after their names, so they must be smart people. And holy cow, I grew up in church. Nobody ever told me. Jesus didn't say he's God. And Jesus did not say the words, I am God. He didn't. However, the concept is definitely most clearly there. Flip just a few pages to John chapter 8. I want to show you real quickly two examples. We don't have time to spend a lot of time explaining these. I merely want to show you that you're that I would merely want to show you that they're there and encourage you to study them on your own. So John chapter 8 verse 53. The same book, we're just kind of surveying some high points in John. John 8, verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. How do you think that went over? If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. 
He saw it and was glad. So did Jesus say the words, I am God? No, but that's exactly what he just said. Because look at their reaction. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I really was terrible at grammar, but I'm aware that that's not correct. You don't talk that way. And Jesus isn't an idiot, right? So he's saying something else. What is he saying? Somebody that knows your Bible well, what is he saying? Okay, there's a scene back in the Old Testament with this creepy burning bush that doesn't burn up. And Moses says, I'm not going to do that. I don't even know your name. And God says to Moses, I am. So what's Jesus claiming? He's claiming I am the I am in the bush. Now let's just see if it was clear to them. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. <laughs> Generally, I've found when people want to throw stones at me, it means they're not happy. But in this day, to throw stones at someone meant you committed blasphemy, I'm going to kill you. All right? A little bit further, John 10, verse 31. You're going to notice a theme here. It's not the kind of stoning I hope you are not familiar with. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It is not for a good work we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. The reason we don't see easily in the text, in the Gospels, that Jesus everywhere claims to be God is because we don't understand what we're reading. You can't squeeze a page and it not drip out. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Friends, it does sound a bit ridiculous to claim that an eternal, all-powerful God named Jesus chose to become a man chose to not stop being God, but to put all of his godness down into human form, dependent upon the will of the Father and the power of the Spirit. I will readily admit to you, and I think you should to yourself and to others, that sounds a bit absurd. It sounds ridiculous. And it would be, except for the fact it's true. If you'll look at the evidence objectively, the most logical, conservative, safe conclusion you can possibly reach is that it must be true. It must be true. So our second fact is Jesus is God in skin. Now before we go to our third, would you take just a second and imagine with me that you've never heard the story from this point on. So this, this man claimed to be God, was born as a Jewish baby, grew up, did some pretty cool miracles. A lot of people got really mad at him. A lot of other people said, I'll follow you. But imagine you don't know any of the rest of the story. 
Perhaps there's some of us here today who who don't know what happens next. We're thrilled you're here. Welcome. The great benefit that you have over the rest of us is that you're going to actually hear what I'm about to share with you. The rest of us tend to not hear it. And if you've heard it before, would you consider this? Last summer, my family moved to a new home to be closer to the church family and to involve our lives more readily in and out every day with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We simply live too far away to do that. When we moved, we quickly discovered that there was a nearby fire station that was pretty loud. Morning, afternoon, evening, middle of the night. Sirens, sirens, sirens. So many that at one point, Jill said to me, Chuck, you sure moved me to a nice, safe neighborhood. (laughs) Now, nearly a year later, I can tell you I don't remember the last time I heard a siren. So either there's no more kitties caught up in the cacti, or people are no longer having emergencies, or all the crimes have ceased, or I've just stopped being able to hear it. When we become accustomed to something, it, it no longer strikes us like it should. If you're here today and you've heard the rest of the story, would you realize that what happened to me with sirens happens to you and me with spiritual truth? And when that begins to happen, would you plead with God to protect your heart from getting hard and your ears from getting dull? Because we're all prone to that. Here is the third fact, and it is the greatest. Jesus is both the slaughtered lamb and the sovereign Lord. Jesus is both the one who took the wrath of God we deserve for our sinfulness and the Lord worthy of our worship and complete allegiance. Jesus is the one who lived the life we couldn't live so that he could die the death that we died. He reigns as king over all, yet was willing to give up his own life. It's completely counterintuitive. We know absolutely nothing else like this. If we were kings of a nation, we would lounge in selfishness. But Jesus is king of the cosmos, and he gave himself up for us. Radically different than us. I want to show you this in Colossians 1. So this will be the last passage I ask you to look at. Would you flip over to Colossians 1? And if you have never memorized anything from the Bible, this would be a great place to start because it reminds us of what's most important. And if you're here today and you don't know the rest of the story, the story is encapsulated here in just a few sentences. This is the story from the beginning of time till the end and from the beginning of the Bible till the end. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, this is Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. So John told us this. Now we're looking at a different author who didn't always believe that tell us the same thing by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible 
thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, John said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he'd already told us the word was God. Now Paul's saying the same thing. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The passage very clearly says to us, Jesus is both the slaughtered lamb and the sovereign Lord. Would you allow me to describe those to you for just a few minutes? Jesus is the slaughtered lamb. There's a word in that paragraph we just read that seems to not make any sense at all. It seems so completely out of context with everything else that's been expressed. We're told that Jesus is the exact image of God, that he reigns over all creation, that he created everything, that everything was made for him, to worship him, to honor him, to enjoy him. We're told that he's supreme and so powerful that everything holds together because he holds it together. In other words, the natural world functions naturally because Jesus continually causes it to do so. We're told that the church is his, that the billions of believers throughout history who have been followers of God, no matter what language they spoke or country they lived in, all his. And that all the fullness of God, in other words, God himself, is Jesus. If you add those things up, just looking at the universal statements it makes, it says, Jesus reigns over all creation, all things, all things, all things, all things, everything, all the fullness, all things. I think it's trying to make a point. Everything is his. Now, just imagine you don't know the rest of the story. What's the deal with the phones today? Turn your phones off! So if you don't know the rest of the story, you imagine if that's true, then this is the king of everything, right? Like he can do whatever he wants to do. Simply flick his finger and he's got anything he wants. Simply speak a word and it happens. Simply have a desire and it comes about. Are you tracking with me? Okay. But there's this little thing in the sentence, in the paragraph, that doesn't seem to fit. Verse 18, the second half. He's the firstborn from the dead. How does a being like that die? Isn't death the ultimate picture of weakness, frailty, incompetence? Isn't that what death is? Isn't death the final blow? Why is that strange sentence there? If Jesus is all that other stuff, then how in the world could he have died? And if he died, 
Why are we here talking about him? Friends, Jesus lived a life of absolute obedience to the Father's will. He's the only one who's ever done that. And therefore, God, the Father, could allow God the Son to die in our place. So when Jesus died on the cross, his body, his humanity died. He could be the lamb, the the substitute from the Old Testament. So all through the Old Testament, if you're a hunter, you really like the Old Testament, right? Because they're they're just killing animals all the time. Why? Because it was a picture that sin deserves death. And so God in His grace allowed lambs to die instead of people. And all of that merely functioned as a way of shining forward to the real lamb, the one who didn't deserve to die, who would die in our place. And so the reason we're talking about him today is not even because of that. We're talking about him today because the slaughtered lamb rose from the dead as the sovereign Lord. And he rose as the first of a new order. The first who would be the firstborn from the dead. So in other words, Jesus is the sovereign Lord. Now, Lord, that word doesn't mean much to us, but it shows us that Jesus deserves, even demands, that we follow him. Because, precisely because, he is the one that died and came back from the dead. But not just came back from the dead, like all these crazy little books that are coming out right now about people who die and they go see the heaven and they come back from the dead. Guess what's going to happen to all those people? Even if they're telling the truth, and I have my own doubts about that. Even if they die and they came back, what's going to happen? They're going to die again. That's called resuscitation. Jesus didn't get resuscitated. He got resurrected. Now, what does that mean? That means everything. That means he doesn't die again. That means he is the the first fruit picked from the tree that shows us what every other piece of fruit is going to be like that's connected to that tree. And guess what? If you're in Christ, that's you. So your spirit will never die again. And you have been given the promise that one day you'll be given a body that will never die again. You will live forever in ultimate joy with Jesus, who's the prototype. That's why we worship Him. Because nobody else has ever done that. And nobody else will ever do that. You see, brothers and sisters, the world is not as it should be. It wasn't supposed to be like this. People weren't supposed to live in fear of one another. Women were not supposed to be used online for sexual fantasies. Kids were not supposed to be ignored and seen as inconveniences. People were not supposed to be feeling the deadness of sin and the separation from a good and loving and wonderful God. Marriages weren't supposed to be shattered by selfishness. Children, money, work, the desire for a spouse, approval, degrees, hobbies, personal autonomy, the shape of our bodies. None of those supposed... Those things were supposed to invite us to worship them. 
But that's what happens every moment of every day. And so Jesus came in order to set us free from this silliness, to give us the opportunity to come back to Him, to enjoy life. And the only way He could do that was if He died in our place so that the wrath of God could be put on Him and the life of God could be put on us. That's the good news. And the absolute centerpiece of all of that new world is Jesus. God, not us, instituted a plan to recreate the world. And sitting around you are little pieces of new creation. And they're broken and they're frail and they're still kind of messed up. But a seed has been planted that's growing. Not because they've come in this room a lot or given a lot of money or stopped having sex with people they were not supposed to be having sex with or quit calling their brother or sister a dumb head or stopped stealing at work. But because God in His grace said, you're mine. And they said, okay. Jesus took your place. Jesus was the firstborn, the prototype for a whole new, reborn, recreated, restored humanity. That's the gospel. And that means that Jesus is the epicenter of life. What this passage in Colossians tells us is that there is an order in creation. Did you see that? There's an order to what's been made. Water freezes at 32 degrees. Always. We will never see that here. (laughs) But that's true. The sun is always scorching in Tempe, Arizona. Always. Why? Because Jesus holds it all together. Where the presence and power of Jesus is, there's order. There's things you can count on. There's a lack of chaos. And what this passage brilliantly does is tell us, here's here's the way Jesus reigns over creation and here's the way he can reign over you. Isn't that cool? In other words, to the degree that you submit your life to Jesus, to the degree that you come under his kingdom, to the degree that the slaughtered lamb becomes your sovereign Lord, then you will also find order, peace, and harmony. Not the absence of trouble, but the ability to be unrocked by the trouble. We become new creations in Christ and the church family then becomes a beautiful counterculture to the ridiculousness of sin in the world. When we recognize Jesus as the epicenter of all of life, then Jesus' good rule and reign becomes ours. So in closing, a couple of implications of what we've considered today. Jesus is utterly unique. The claims of Christianity from the scriptures rightly understood, there is absolutely no other message like it. There's plenty of things that sound familiar, but they're not when you drill down in. Jesus is to be worshipped and honored and enjoyed, enjoyed, obeyed. 
As the slaughtered lamb and the sovereign Lord, Jesus is preeminent. He only wants first place. He won't allow you to share that spot with others. To the degree that you do, you diminish the joy available to you in Him. And friends, if Jesus is God, He can't simply come into your life as an add-on. He can't just be aside with the meat of your life being something else. It won't work. Jesus is explosive. Get out of the way and let him consume all of you. And you will find that that is not a fight for anything else but your joy. The commands of God to have control over every part of you is not at odds with your desire to experience peace and joy and fulfillment and contentment. And as you find those things coming together, then you will find why Jesus must be preeminent experientially. Let's pray. God, thank you for your scriptures that teach us so clearly that Jesus is God, that Jesus is God in skin, that Jesus is amazingly both the one who died to take our sin and the one who now reigns as king of all. I pray for the Christians in the room, those who have already given faith and trust over to Christ, turn from sin and turn to God. Those that have been saved. I pray that we would live in such a way that our lives show that that's truth. And I pray for those in the room who have yet to open the door of faith, that they even now would do so. In Jesus' name I pray.